Hello and welcome to the Missing Link in Neovascular AMD podcast series. My name is Carl Rogillo. I'm the Chief of the Retina Service at Wills Eye Hospital and partner at Mid-Atlantic Retina in Philadelphia. I will serve as the moderator of this podcast, and our goal is to have an open and honest discussion around our topic. This podcast episode will explore the real-world impact of patients lost to follow-up, factors that drive non-adherence and strategies for encouraging better follow-up from patients. And of course, this is with the goal of improving outcomes. It's my pleasure to have with me on this program, Dr. Margaret Chang, Retinal Consultants Medical Group in Sacramento, California, and Dr. David Eichenbaum, Retina Vitreous Associates of Florida in St. Petersburg, Florida. Welcome, Margaret and David. Thanks. Nice to be here. Great to be here with you guys. Thank you. Well, glad to have you both. Uh, this podcast is part of an editorially independent program exploring treatment burden in neovascular AMD, new and novel agents and development that may help us address these issues in the clinic. Although the program is supported by advertising, the discussion views and opinions expressed are solely those of the participants. To get things started, a little background. Neovascular AMD is the most common vision-threatening retinal condition we treat. We're fortunate to have highly effective anti-VEGF agents available for us to use, and these perform really well in clinical trials. But as you're all aware of now, the drugs have limited durability, and in the real world, we're not getting the same types of vision outcomes for our patients on average. So we don't stack up to these registration studies in terms of vision outcomes, even after just a year or two, let alone thereafter. And a major contributing factor is that it's hard for our patients to make it in on a frequent and regular basis uh, to see us to get the treatments they need. To start off the discussion, this is the problem at hand, of course. Um, maybe, David, can you tell me a little bit about the factors that lead patients to miss appointments? Yeah, so there are a whole host of things that make our wet macular degeneration patients who always start treatment with frequent injections and often require ongoing treatment with relatively frequent injections miss their follow-up appointments. They're often dependent on caregivers. Some publications uh, like John Prenner's paper show that over 70% of them come with a caregiver. Their caregiver's busy, their caregiver's car breaks down, their caregiver can't make it because of work. They're usually a child or a younger helper. If they're a spouse, they can get sick. Patients themselves can get sick. Other medical things happen in this elderly population and uh, they miss appointments. Um, with the Medicare population for neovascular macular degeneration, fortunately cost is often not as much of a barrier for them as with a younger diabetic population. But there have been publications that discuss a perception of a lack of benefit of the injections and a demotivating factor for that over time and kind of a mismatch in expectations that lead to missed appointments in these patients. There are a whole bunch of things and the, the issue is it's kind of a downward spiral. The more appointments they miss, the worse they do. And the worse they do, the more appointments that they're likely to miss. So it's a problem in our current neovascular macular degeneration treatment strategy. Those are some good points, especially the downhill spiral aspect to that. Margaret, is there anything we can identify at the onset of treatment when we first meet the patient and make the diagnosis of wet AMD? 
that might help us to identify the patients at risk? Well, I think that patients who don't understand the disease process and who don't understand how important it is to follow up on a monthly and a very frequent basis are the ones who are going to be lost to follow up. I think that patients and very importantly, the families and caregivers who come with the patients need to be educated about the disease at the very beginning so that they understand that treatment is chronic and that regular repeated treatment is necessary for success. So if the patient and the family are engaged and ask questions about whether there's anything they can do to help themselves uh, keep the treatment success, then they're the most compliant patients going forward. You know, those are very good points. And we're going to get into strategies about how we can make things better. When we see the patients at the beginning, uh, there have been some factors identified, but unfortunately that they're not necessarily modifiable. Things like the distance to get to the office uh, was correlated with loss to follow-up or um, poor adherence to the treatments. Um, older patients, and probably David, that, that gets into maybe other health issues uh, or difficulties or reliance on other, uh, on other people, family members, friends, and so forth. Income does matter, lower income um, and uh, the expense, co-pays and so forth uh, can, be, can be issues too. Um, and you mentioned uh, vision, you know, it's, it's interesting that poor vision at baseline also tends to predict um, non-adherence. Maybe it's because they don't perceive a benefit. They're not getting maybe the, ben- the, the, the better vision they were hoping for. And that can be an issue. What about COVID? Now, now, for over a year now, we've been living in this COVID pandemic. Uh, Margaret, uh, how has that affected your practice and in particular your management of wet MD patients? You know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, some of our patients were very afraid of COVID and decided not to come in um, because of that. And for our part, we did basically pare down our clinic to those patients who really just needed the injections or emergency patients who needed Um, retinal detachment surgery or those uh, follow-ups following surgery. Um, But we did decide to call every single patient ahead of their appointment in order to enforce compliance and to kind of reassure them that we were going to do social distancing in the office and sanitize between every single patient and also to ask them COVID screening questions over the phone. Um, And I think that was really successful. You know, we basically bounced back to normal clinic levels uh, by early summer. So um, I would say that adherence hasn't been a huge issue since then. It was a really tough situation. People were balancing uh, losing my vision versus losing my life. And, um, you know, unfortunately, regardless of how safe of an environment we're able to create, and in hindsight, we did a good job. I think overall, I know in my practice, um, we never had any major issues, um, but uh, patients, you know, unfortunately missed, missed treatments. Uh, I found that some did okay, you know, missed a, a visit here and there, maybe two or four weeks late. Um, but that happening on a frequent and regular basis, the cumulative effect, of course, takes hold. But I did see some disasters too, especially those that missed two or three months. Um, and in fact, there was a very recent publication out of Coli by Greenlee and Associates. Um, and they defined a lapse of three or more months. And maybe there's some something that applies to COVID here, because some of those patients did lose two or three months of time between visits. Uh, they found, of course, they, I'm going to say our, our fear has been confirmed. You know, we can recover them anatomically by restarting the treatments, but on average, they did not recover the vision they had before the lapse. And that's, that's the sad part. I think 
I'm sure you've seen your, your anecdotes of disasters that occurred uh, in patients that were two, three, four months late or, or missed their appointments for whatever reason and COVID being one of the big ones in the past year. But even pre-COVID, um, non-adherence or um, loss to follow-up was, was a big issue for us. Um, we've discussed some of the factors and some of the issues that influence it, but uh, it, I was surprised. Uh, my own research fellow at, at Will's Eye, Anthony Obeid, published a number of uh, loss to follow-up papers. And in wet AMD, the overall rate of loss to follow-up for 12 or more months, which is extraordinary, was 22%. I, I found that to be uh, a shock. I really thought it was better. I thought our elderly patients who were retired and able to come see us uh, we're doing better than that, but um, 12 months or more is a long time. You know there's going to be some permanent vision loss. So tell me, maybe David, tell me about your initial conversation with the patient. Uh, and Margaret was alluding to this too a little earlier about maybe a little bit of the background you need to provide uh, to our patients to try to get them on board to, um, to understand and therefore uh, do their best to see us in a timely, regular fashion to, to get good outcomes. Yeah, there are a couple of things that I always emphasize to patients on their first visit. Their first visit is long. It's a new patient visit. There's, you know, the complete exam, dilated exam, imaging, medical history. They're new to the office. A couple of things I emphasize to them when they're spending time with me. First of all, you put the time in at that first visit. Like Margaret was saying, she's exactly right. Education to the patient and whoever's with them on the first visit. It's kind of overwhelming when you're talking to them the first time. More important, you emphasize that this is the start of a lifelong treatment, that we don't have a cure for their wet macula degeneration, but we have outstanding treatments if they stick to it and we are always working on better treatments. And the third thing that I emphasize, and I think this is very, very important, is I set their expectation not so much for the vision, because you don't know exactly how that's going to do. I tell them the vast majority of patients get a little bit better and almost everyone stops losing vision if they stick to the treatment. But I don't focus on that. What I focus on is how easy and unburdensome I'm going to try to make it. All of their subsequent appointments are shorter than their first one. And I emphasize that to them because the first visit can be two or three hours. And I tell them, and I make a strong effort in my practice for the wet macula degeneration patients, especially who are gonna be on some kind of relatively short interval for the foreseeable future of their disease, even with the best agents we have, not more than 12 to 16 weeks going for, forward commercially. I tell them that you're gonna be here for a short time, I'm gonna make it as easy as I can for you. And we're gonna work as a team to preserve your vision, yet let you retain your days that you're coming into seeing me. Your subsequent visits will be less than 60 or 90 minutes, preferably 45 minutes or 35 minutes. And they really like hearing that. And if I can deliver on that promise, which is sometimes like moving a mountain, um, they uh, can stick to the plan a lot easier, I think. Margaret, anything to add? Things that you say at, up front at the consultation? Absolutely. I, I do think that patients are very anxious when they first hear that they're going to get an injection in their eye. And I try and normalize that anxiety and tell them that it's perfectly normal to feel anxious about that. And that I would actually feel a little bit uh, worried about them if they didn't have that anxiety about having a shot in their eye. Um, so I do try to treat the new consults on the first visit if I'm not going to enroll them in a clinical trial so that they don't have time to go home 
think about it and change their mind because they're so worried about it. Um, I do try and make the first uh, injection particularly comfortable for them so that at the end of the visit, they go, wow, that's it. Um, and they have no qualms about scheduling their future visits. I also like to not have them leave without getting their first shot. And um, when that has happened, people often come back saying, I didn't sleep at all <laughs> every night waiting to come back. And of course, it's um, and patients still get anxious each and every time they come, but they know in general it's quick and it's well tolerated. And that's that that eases um, the, at least the, the psychological burden of it. I tell patients up front, I said, look, we've got great treatments. They work very well, um, but they need to be administered frequently. We'll try to get the best vision outcome uh, with the least amount of treatments, but it is going to be on a, a relatively frequent and regular basis indefinitely. I say this is a disease control. There's no cure. We can't stop the treatment. If we stop the treatment, the disease will progress and you'll lose vision. And, you know, again, when I, when I tell them it's no cure, uh, they, they want a cure. We all want a cure, but uh, unfortunately we won't have that uh, for some time to come, hopefully in the not too distant future. That is something that has to be repeated. I, in about six months after, even though you say this at the very first visit, about six months later, they keep on asking, when is this going to end? So uh, I think this is a, uh, an ongoing discussion that needs to be had with the patient each time. And you touched on an important point with that, Margaret, because they always ask me, they've gotten, you know, 55 injections. And the first question for some of my patients is, doc, am I doing better? So they're not doing better. They're doing same, but I say, you know, you're doing a lot better than you would without these shots. So I do tell them they're doing better, but without... I can't tell them they're getting better, they're gaining vision, but everyone who sticks to the plan does better than the natural history of wet macular degeneration. So in a sense, they're always doing better. No, these are some great points because it is a lot to throw at a patient uh, when they first come and hear about their diagnosis of wet AMD for the first time, or maybe even the fellow eye, but you're right, it's an ongoing process of learning and educating and reinforcing. I'm glad you brought that up, Margaret because we all inevitably get that, well, can I stop now? Or when can I stop? And it's like, didn't we have this conversation three, four, five months ago? Um, but you're right. It's sort of like um, I was the head of the IRB at our institution and, and the informed consent is, is called a process because it, it really is something that patients need to understand and that could take time. Um, and this is a process to get them to understand it realize what needs to be done and to best cope with it over time. Um, and it, it, it sort of just helps, I think. And uh, we're gonna get into that, um, into the strategies. So we already started to touch upon how we can make this situation, the problem we have better. The problem of course is, you know, compliance, uh, getting good outcomes, uh, in the real world, and uh, it's a challenge. Um, so let's dive a little deeper into what we can do uh, to make the best of this situation, uh, both now and then we can take a glimpse into the future. But um, tell me, sh share some additional strategies over time to keep the patients motivated. Um, it could be anything from uh, advice to getting to the office, or some patients ask me, do I need to be dilated every time? I'd like to drive myself. Um, tell me all the things that come to mind that helps the patient 
to buy into this, to get them uh, to be seen on the frequent and regular basis that they need to. Um, David, how about you? It's three things for me, and this is a formula that I have. It's painless, make the shots painless. I use pledgets and 33 gauge Ocudec needles, Ocudec caps, no speculum. Painless, quick, a lot of undilated exams with or without OCT. Visits should be well under an hour on most days for injections. And positive, painless, quick, and positive. Positivity goes a long way because the patients do have this problem with an absence of perceived benefit. They sometimes have other medical conditions. Sometimes they're blue for other reasons. You can be positive about their eye outcome if they're sticking to the plan, even if they're not doing as well as they would like or you would like, they're doing a lot better than the natural history of the disease. Painless, quick, positive. And I think that really helps retention. Doesn't cure the problem of our relatively frequent injections, but it gets us set up for success and reinforces that success every time. And um, if I fail on one or more of those at a visit, I'm very apologetic about it. And I think people appreciate it when you are running behind and you genuinely apologize for it and you don't run behind every time they're there. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the notion of quote, getting better. Um, I tell patients most of the improvement is going to come up front within the first few injections. And thereafter, we're, we're maintaining uh, that improvement, whatever we can get. I get you to your best and keep you at your best. And so I do try to set the expectation that they're not going to keep getting better. And you brought that up in a good way because obviously there's a limit to how good they're going to get. And they're going to keep getting better. And then, of course, sometimes they have the slide over time, whether that be atrophy. We all know that can sometimes start to hit uh, hit in, you know, one, two, three or more years later. Um, what about the role of imaging? Margaret, um, do you show the patients? I mean, how do you get them involved? Oh, I always show the patient uh, the OCT image and the technicians bring up the comparison OCTs from the last visit and the current visit um, in the room with the patient as soon as the patient uh, walks in the room. Um, my savvy patients will actually look at the OCT themselves and tell me if there's fluid. Um, so they really know what's going on. Um, they like to see what's going on. And you know, oftentimes as we know, there's not a vision change, but they can see the change in the OCT. And so it helps keep them motivated, engaged, and they can tell uh, when there's been too long of an interval between treatments just by looking at the OCT themselves. So they like it, I like it, it's a great teaching tool. Yeah, it's fantastic. It helps to keep the patient engaged. Um, it's easy to understand, you, you point to when there was fluid, when there isn't fluid and say, this is where we need to keep you, how we need to keep you. And by doing so, this is the, the, the way we keep your vision as good as possible. Yeah, these are excellent points. What about any other imaging? Uh, do you bring in anything else other than uh, OCT, David? Well, someone's going to say some of the patients really buy into that and they'll look at their OCT and they'll almost read it for you before you're, you're in the room. That's the minority of my patients, but they're like, I don't want to see red bubbles on the map, or I don't want to see that black stuff under my, under my, um, retina, you know, they, they get really, some of them get really into it. I don't really bring much else into the, um, wet macular degeneration patient other than the B-scan OCT. We have OCTA in our office, which we use routinely in the clinical trials as an investigative tool. 
I use it in the limited fashion in clinical practice. Um, I have a hard time reading OCTAs and I often get a baseline angiogram on their first visit. I'll often never repeat the angiogram and rely on the B-scan OCT. I actually still like fluorescine um, if I'm thinking about extending a patient for a prolonged period of time. Honestly, I do think that there's some patients who are dry on the OCT and they're still leaking on the FA. And that makes me a bit more cautious with that patient than I would be otherwise. Yeah, I say I rely mostly on the, the B scan of the OCT. I don't really look at maps. I uh, pretty much look qualitative at, qualitatively at fluid, the presence or absence in the compartments and so forth. Patients really understand that well. David, you must have very sophisticated patients if they can read the maps and interpret those accurately. But um, these are all very helpful. It's funny because I don't look at the maps either, but with our setting on the Heidelberg, the map comes up often in the room first. And if the technician doesn't click it to the lines, which is what I always, I always do a quick scroll of our raster, the patient stares at the map, which is often fraught with um, segmentation errors and things that make it very inaccurate. So sometimes um, if it's one of those patients who's uh, engaged by the OCT or engaged by the map that they see, and they see one that's looks bad because of a segmentation error, I have to walk that back sometimes, which can be entertaining. And uh, I do it in a positive way and say, look, it's not bad at all. Look, this is what I look at, which is the B scan. And I say, look, you're doing just fine compared to your first scan. And I always can go back quickly to the first scan and show them the dramatic change from their first injection to where they're at, you know, six, 12, 24 months later. That's a good point. I often do to go back to the very initial um, OCT, we all forget, uh, me alike, in terms of how bad it was. And it really shows the patient the progress they've made and, and how well they're doing. Um, so it's good strategy, the comparison to the previous one, making sure they're optimized in terms of the exudative control and so forth. I also agree with you, don't really utilize OCTA in geography much, especially after a, a diagnostic encounter. Um, but uh, you know, once treatment is started, I'm not quite sure what it, what it can really tell you. And it's certainly difficult to interpret. Uh, Margaret, do you use much OCTA? No, not very much at all. Uh, you know, sometimes in a research setting, but as you guys pointed out, I think the OCT, uh, B-scan OCT is the, is the way to go. You know, for the most part, uh, it's fair to say that the anti-VEGFs we've been using are very comparable, both in efficacy, safety, and um, throw in durability too, maybe some small differences there, but we're looking at drugs that, you know, you, you probably all do the treat and extend approach in the range of four to 12 weeks. Do you ever extend more than 12 weeks uh, for a given patient, uh, Margaret? I have, you know, there are some patients who are coming in 16 weeks. Um, it's not often. And there are then some patients who really don't need treatment after years and years and years. Um, and they are people that I follow very, very closely to start off with if I'm gonna do something like that. And I extend them to 12 to 16 weeks for a few times, see how they do. Then I'll start following them monthly again if I'm not going to treat them. And I would say that I have quite a few patients who were getting treatment for six or seven years straight, and they've actually been dry now for another six or seven years. So you will test the waters occasionally after extending and stop and watch. I, but I watch very closely. I have to say, I very rarely do that. 
Uh, I very rarely go beyond 12. I'm a little gun shy, 12 weeks. I tried to, I tested that once in a trial, didn't really get out too long, but uh, you're absolutely right. The only problem with treatment extended never stopping is you never know of those occasional patients who they are um, that may never need a treatment or won't need it for many years. Um, it's kind of a, the, the trial and error process that we, we sort of live by uh, in managing wet AMD with our current agents. David, do you have anything different with our current drugs? Yeah, with our current drugs, I've started with some patients in the last year going out to 16 per Altair and Aries, um, but that's relatively new to me. And those are, you know, not the gold standard uh, registration trials, um, uh, you know, so that we have quarterly maintenance in the second year of um, our registration data for a Flibercept, for example. Uh, so, I'm gun shy also to go out to 16, even though I've tried it. I'm looking forward to our agents that have uh, registration data in large populations going out further that are coming. Um, but I also very rarely stop. I'm more like you, Carl. I'm probably missing the two to 5% of patients per Harbor's PRN data who can stop, but I'm not missing the 95% who can't stop. Um, and I am an ardent treatment extender. Well, I think the future is bright. You, you mentioned uh some more durable therapies coming our way. No doubt about it. Um, we have some promising agents that look to be more durable and that's gonna help with the situation because something that lasts longer sort of wears off slower and that's gonna be more forgiving for our patients that miss some appointments here and there, end up in the hospital for a couple of weeks and are two or three weeks late. Um, I really do think it will help uh, to maintain those vision gains we get and get better long-term outcomes. Um, what about future monitoring. Now we, we've got some potential other ways to help fine tune the treatment interval or how we're going to treat patients. Um, uh, we're hearing about home OCT, for example. Um, I don't know if either of you had any experience in, in piloting these. Um, I, I know of two actually, and maybe there are more, but um, what's the timeline for home OCT? Um, Margaret, uh, what is your knowledge on that? Well, I think that hopefully they'll be out on the market relatively soon. Um, I think that home monitoring with home OCT would totally decrease the burden for patients and allow us to do treat and extend therapy a bit more elegantly. Um, this would definitely help um, decrease the visit burden for our patients. But I do think that the prompt diagnosis and treatment if there is a relapse is an important uh, thing to have for our patients who wanna come back into the office and restart treatment um, as soon as possible in case the treatment extent is going too long. David, your thoughts, home OCT, who and when? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. Um, I had the pleasure of betaing the home OCT um, shortly before the pandemic. I have not piloted with it, but I have betaed. I was impressed with the quality of the imaging that we had uh, on the um, home OCT from Notal as an investigational unit that I had a chance to experience. Um, and I think that it would have a very important role for our longer interval, actively treated wet AMD patients. I doubt that it's going to be a screening tool at home. I think democratization of imaging and getting imaging into the community setting is going to help us, especially with diabetics, but that's a different topic for a different day. But with, uh, with home OCT, we could prescribe it 
barring cost issues and access issues to our patients on long duration therapy to see how far we can push the envelope while reducing the burden of receiving that long duration therapy, which goes back to what we started our first conversation with, which is the distance to the clinic, the caregiver, the comorbidities, the cost or co-pays or what have you of coming into the clinic, all of these things can be wrapped up in an efficient, high quality, relatively low cost home OCT that will help reduce those pain points for wet macular degeneration, active treatment. I think if you're going to push the envelope, um, I've not seen a patient for more than four months and some of our treatments could easily go much more than four months. Look at port delivery system, for example, and um, gene therapy. We may even go back to PRN style where you treat, um, use home OCT. Otherwise they're gonna have to still come in and then that kind of defeats the purpose. That's the, the whole notion coming full circle of getting the patients into the office and, and uh, the expense burden and travel time and so forth that it takes. And um, so that's where I think the future is bright. Um, longer acting drugs in conjunction, it's perfect timing, in conjunction with um, um, telemedicine-like techniques uh, to monitor the response and know exactly, like you said, Margaret, precisely when a patient will need another treatment. And so they don't go too far, too long. And that's what's happening now when they don't come to the office. They go too long and there's data to support that that does harm. So this has really been very informative. I thank you both so much for shedding such insight and wonderful pearls and managing patients and trying to cope with the problem of loss to follow-up lapses and treatment and so forth that uh, really make it challenging to get the best outcomes for our patients with neovascular AMD. Thank you again for, for being with us. Mm -hmm.